Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, a church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations, so we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website, midtownchurchokc.org. Lord, it's already been said, but the truth rings very clearly in many of our hearts that we are in a season of lament. Not only Lent and the spiritual meaning of lament, but many of us in our own lives are lamenting things that we wish were different. I look across our congregation and see teachers who lament the situations of their students, who lament a state that seems not to care about the cost it required to teach them well and to care for our teachers and our students, teachers who lament that it comes down to deciding on a walkout in a few weeks. And we lament with them. And there are other faces, individuals among us, who lament illness, difficult medical decisions, and possibly even the end to medical decisions that can be made. And we grieve with our friends who are seeing death much closer than they wanted to in the lives of people that they love. There are others who lament injustice, wrongdoing, painful decisions that have been made against them or others who are near them. And we ask for these brothers and sisters that you would provide clarity and courage. And we lament with them. We wish there was no need for them to have courage in these kinds of situations. There are those among us who lament joblessness and homelessness and familylessness, and our hearts cry out because we love them and we want something so much better for them. And yet, even in lament, while we are still awaiting resurrection, the truth is that nothing can separate us from your love, Lord Jesus. For if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger, or if we are even threatened with death, does it mean that you no longer love us? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through you, Christ Jesus, who loves us. And so we can be convinced even in lament, that nothing can ever separate us from your love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell itself can separate us from your love. No power in the sky above or in the heaven below Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from your love, O God, 
that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who also laments and who has also died and who has risen again. Would you this evening provide us with the assurance of your presence, the presence of the risen Christ, and would you sit as we grieve? Would you encourage us when we need to take action? Would you once again be faithful to us as we look to you to provide what we need from you? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you are and what you are doing? And then would you give us even the grace to be faithful, to do our own part as you invite us into your good work? This is what we ask, and this is what we need from you. And so together we pray in the name of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Amen. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And I've got some friends who have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and you need to borrow one, you can just hold up your hand and somebody will hand you a Bible. If uh, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and uh, if you don't own one, you can keep this uh, for yourself. But I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21. And I would like to warn you that this has been a controversial passage over the years. So let us listen to this together. Uh, at our church, we always invite people to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, so I invite you to stand at this time. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21, hear the word of the Lord for us this evening. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as church, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his, of his body of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. 
serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. We went through the uh, book of Ephesians as we prepared to launch the church, a small band of us, before we uh, decided to officially become a church and have our, own, uh, have our own church and launch our first Sunday, went through this book. And this is one of the texts that we covered during that time, and it might seem like a strange Lenten text to cover during this time as well. But as we prepared to plant a church and launch a church, and now as we prepare to move into a new place, we felt like Ephesians was the letter for us. So this week, I got to see the final touches be put on the 8th Street Church building. For those of you who do not know, we have purchased an old building, and for the last six or so months, we have been remodeling it. We invite you, uh, we invite you to come after this service and take a tour of that building. Everybody is invited who would like to come and see it. But um, as we put the final touches on the 8th Street Church building, it's caused me to reflect on a number of different things over the last number of months. It's caused me to reflect over the many meetings that I've been a part of and the conversations and the church votes to get approval to do this and the raising of the money and the people that I've gotten to, uh, that I've gotten to meet, fabulous people, and the people that I've gotten to see. This is Anton Klassen's church. He was the guy that President McKinley told to lay out Oklahoma City, and he put his personal chapel on the corner of the vision that he had for this new city. We are in the business of making old stuff new again, and soon, just a couple of weeks, we're going to move in, and this is really big stuff, and I like big stuff. Now, You and I are in this big stuff together, and we've heard this call, and in just a couple weeks, we're getting ready, and it feels like it's time to pull up the bootstraps, it's time to get going. You've heard all of the announcements, and you know what you need to do, because friends, it is time to do something big. But then, in the middle of all that we are about to do, we read a passage like this. This passage is not about church buildings, and it's not about raising money. It's not even about starting something new. It's not even about marching against injustice or or being an advocate or, or standing for social change. In the midst of all that we have going on as a church, Paul wants to talk to us about what happens in everyday life. He wants to talk about households, and he spends time in the middle of all of this exciting stuff that we have been talking about and we have been reading in Ephesians. He wants to talk about, you know, what happens at your house. 
He wants to talk about first century household codes. And in the first century, this would include the churches, these little bands of people that didn't meet in buildings like we do, but met in households. And, and these little churches were usually made up of their, relevi- of their relatives. This, this, is what, this is what Paul wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the relationships that we have with the people that we live with every day. This passage is about the people you, who you live with and work with and worship with. It's about wives and husbands and children and parents. And to our chagrin in the 21st century, masters and slaves. This passage is about the people that you see every single day. And we're uncomfortable with this passage for a couple different reasons. We have a couple different levels. First, when we read this passage through our 21st century uh, framework as a people, People that value liberty and freedom, this whole passage seems to be oppressive. And honestly, in the past, people have taken this passage and read it and, and applied oppressive intentions to it. They've, they've used this passage to support an ideology that makes it okay for men to beat up their wives or for parents to abuse their children or to Christianize a horrific institution called slavery. We're uncomfortable with the passage for that reason. But we're uncomfortable with this passage for another reason as well, on a whole other level. This call God places on the people in Ephesus and this church is not about doing something big. And that's what I like to do. The call seems to take them to them and us to the kitchen and the dorm room, to the classroom, to the workplace, to the honeymoon suite. This call is not to move on to bigger and better things and to do great things for God, but the call comes in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. You heard it immediately. It says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit. To me, this seems to be a very anticlimactic passage. It can seem disappointing even, because up until this point, Ephesians has been marvelous. It has been this book of of explosion of wonder and mystery, and there have been these deep layers of theology and philosophy, and we have experienced the resurrected Christ in these pages, and we have seen spirit-filled activity, and then it's like in the middle of all that, Paul decides to put on the brakes. And he says, go home, go to work, serve, submit, and, deduce, and do so out of your reverence for Christ. This passage, it, there's no sex appeal in it. If we're on God's team, we want to do something amazing. We should do something big. I want to make a difference. We planted a church. We did something courageous. We want to change a city. And Paul's response is this. Okay, you want to do great things? Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. And start with those with whom you live and you work and you worship. This, my friends, is how Paul defines holiness. Love in the most common places. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is one of my favorite theologians. I've talked to you about him many times. He was a German pastor that stood against Hitler's fascist regime, and he led the confessing church, and he taught in secret seminaries, and he said the kingdom of God explodes in ordinary things. He indicated that the very presence of God and God's best work is done in the hard the Lenten parts of life. And Paul assumes that those of us who have relationships, that those of us who have relationships, that we have these relationships and they can be sometimes difficult. And we find that these difficult places come out of, or these difficult relationships come out of places like our homes and our worship places and our workplaces. And the difficult relationships are what make Lent real for us. We lament our bad marriage. We lament the wayward or the hurting child. We lament the horrible work environment. We lament when church people don't act like church people should, and they treat others terribly. How can it be that the holiness of God is best revealed in in our submission, in these real relationships? When I was a senior in college, I was sitting in this theology class, and I was struggling with this idea of holiness is love in the commonplace. And as I battled through this idea, I was reading Martin Luther's little teeny tiny book called Christian Liberty. And in this book, he said this, a Christian is one who is free from all, slave to none. And at the very same time, a Christian is one who is slave to all, free from none. And then Luther drew this picture of the church. He said, the church is like this wife who goes out in the middle of the night and she sells herself like a whore, climbing into the beds of other gods only to discover that the pleasures and promises they offer her are lies. And instead, she finds herself terrified when she sees what is really there because those gods beat her and they leave her for dead. When she comes home in the light of the morning, she is broken and beaten, and there he sits at the breakfast nook, and he is waiting for her, and he has been worried for her, and as she walks in with her head down in shame, he sees her, and he wraps a white robe around her, and he begins to heal her, binding her wounds. He heals her broken bones, and he cares for her until she is well again. And as he does this, he slips upon her finger once again the wedding ring of faith, and he sees her as nothing but his white, bright bride. Love in the commonplaces. This is what holiness is. This is what Jesus does. This is what Paul invites us to do. We have said it all through this season of Lent that Jesus is in the middle of it all. And the invitation to us is clear. We are doing big things, but we do have this reminder that it is in the small things, the common things, where holiness is lived out. And as Jesus submitted In reverence, we are able and given the opportunity to submit to one another as well. 
me say it this way. As Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, we get to be good neighbors to one another. And this is not just for the people who live down the street that we wave to when we leave our driveway when the garage door is going down. This is for the people that we live with, that we work with, that we worship with. For both the first century and this century, this statement that Paul makes to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is a drastic statement. The people of the first century thought about God in, in the same way that we do. God was big and vast and powerful. But what Christianity does is something very different. It flips our thinking upside down, and it drives us straight into the basic, ordinary, hard stuff of this life. In Jesus God is present in the everyday and in the plain. He's in people, and he's in things, and he's in efforts. And as the prophet Isaiah states, he is with us. Now, Paul takes this argument, and he constructs it, he constructs it, this exhortation of his passage, like every other philosopher of the day. From Aristotle on, these exhortations or these instructions have a specific flow. All the things that Paul named are what all the, all the philosophers name. They talk about how to deal with the household, and this is a common way to talk about it. In fact, it was common for the way in which Paul broke it down to talk about it like husband-wife, father-child, and master-servant relationships. His moralistic writing was standard to the Greco-Roman moralistic writing of the day. But then at the very end, when everybody thinks they have heard it exact, they've heard it all before, his message undermines the code of everything, where he says, And he speaks against the absolute authority of the male head of the house. No one would have ever said, submit to one another. But you know, when people submit, you you see it's a gift. It might be the most wonderful gift that we can give to somebody else. When you submit out of your reverence for Christ, you are offering yourself to someone. And this is a sacred and a holy thing. Submission transforms. Submission is the very way of Jesus on display for everyone to see. And it shows up in the most common and the most ordinary things. Several years ago, I was in my office at the church, and I was wrapping up a couple, of, a, a, a couple of final things before I loaded up about 150 students on buses as we were heading out for our winter retreat. And I was getting ready to leave when the secretary rushed into my office, and, and she said an, a, an elderly man named Mr. Enterline had called, and he needed somebody at his house right away. I let her know that I had a lot of stuff to do, but she said it was emergency, so I asked if we needed to call 911, and she said, no, he wants somebody from the church. So I asked her, can you please send someone else? But she told me that I was the only one there. <sighs> Should have left earlier. So I grabbed my keys, and I ran out the door, plugging the address into my phone, and when I got to the house, I knocked on the door, and I waited. I could hear something going on inside, but no one came. So I decided to knock harder, and I could hear something going on. But again, nobody answered. 
I knocked through the door a third time, and I yelled, Mr. Enterline, this is Chris Pollock from the church. I thought about going Chuck Norris on the door, but then I thought better, and I, began, uh, I decided to call 911. And as I was pulling my phone out of my pocket, the knob turned. Mr. Enterline was standing at the door. He, he opened up the screen door, and he grabbed me, and he said, thank you for coming. Then he brought me into the back bedroom of the house, and he said, I need your help. Please pull out the bed. And so I grabbed the frame of the bed, and I pulled the bed away from the wall with ease. In a confused state, he gave me instructions to get on the ground underneath the bed and look for a cord that had come unplugged from the socket. So there I was at Mr. Enterline's house. We had never met before. 150 kids are waiting for me. I've pulled back the bed from the wall, and now here I am on my hands and knees under his bed looking for a cord that had come unplugged. And when I found it, I just slipped it plugged back into the socket, and then I stood up waiting for the emergency. And I was still confused, and, and I was ready for him to show me what really needed to be done. Then he just said, thank you. Would you please wait for me in the living room? So I went and I stood in the living room. I was there for quite a few minutes. And I couldn't figure out what I had just done. In just a couple hours, I was getting ready to have to do something big. And I wasn't ready. There was still a lot to be done. We, we had to leave. So anxiously, I stood there in this, waiting, in this living room where I could hear muffled talking and I could hear movement in the back bedroom. And finally, he came out and talked to me. And he began to cry. He let me know there in that moment that his wife had terrible diabetes. Her circulation was bad. And she was freezing to death because her electric blanket had come unplugged. And this old man who was once a tough Korean vet tried to pull the, back, the bed back and to get on the floor to plug it in, but he wasn't strong enough. And he had been helping her into the, bed, into the bathroom. That's why I had to wait, because she wasn't decent, and it was a hard job for him to do, so that I could get back, and she would have dignity, and I could do this sacred work. And then Mr. Enterline, like in a moment of like epiphany, grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, I knew it. I knew I could call the church. I knew you would come. And then as he was giving one of the most important lessons to one of his children, one of the most important lessons in life to one of his very children, he grabbed me by the shoulders and he shook me and he said, Son, you need to know you can always call on the church. You know, Pastor Mikhail asked a question last week, and it was this. When have you seen the church at her best? And I have seen the church at her best when she's doing the most holy acts in the most common places, and the most holy acts are the most ordinary things. The most holy people are doing holy acts in the most ordinary things. Cooking, cleaning, going to work, driving a car, brushing teeth, making coffee, getting kids dressed, paying bills, 
teaching and children's worship, leading a parish group, turning off the lights when everybody leaves, ushering, running sound, simply coming and being together is a holy act. And Paul tells us that all this stuff, all this household stuff, all this work stuff, all this worship stuff is spiritual stuff because God in Jesus has burst into the physical world. And in Lent, we remember that Jesus is in the middle of it all, even all of this little stuff. And so he gives us the invitation, submit to one another, even in the most common ways, and do so out of your reverence for Christ. Because the holy is on display when a father who no longer decides to no longer put pressure on his son, living vicariously through him, pushing his son to succeed where he has failed. When, when the father simply at home creates an environment where his son might be able to discover his own personal identity and vocation. And the father does it simply out of his reverence for Christ. The holy is on display when the CEO gives credit where credit is due, who doesn't steal ideas from her employees, and she simply does it out of submission and reverence for Christ. The holy, on, the holy is on display when a child honors his mom without being asked to empty the dishwasher ten times before he gets around to do it. He simply does it out of Submission for his reverence for Christ. The, the holy is on display when a student is accused for cheating in class, knowing full well that she's done nothing wrong, but she treats her teacher who accuses her with kindness and respect, and she simply does it out of her submission and reverence for Christ. To submit is to act like God, and it is to be a means of grace for those who are around you. I have a confession to make. I want to do big things. This is what I set my life on. And doing big things is wonderful. Doing things, big things for God is wonderful, but doing little things for God is even more wonderful. Wives, Husbands, children, fathers, servants, masters. These are the relationships that we deal with every day. This is where our faith is made real in our homes and in our worship places and our workplaces. This is where heaven is seen in the ordinary. And when we hear something like this, there are just a couple of ways that we need to respond. I think the first way that we respond is we look at people who have done these kinds of things. We recognize that they are holy activities. I want to show you some pictures, and I want you to remember these people. St. Paul. St. Peter. St. John. And the disciples of old. Yesterday, we observed St. Patrick Day. But there are people like St. Francis of Assisi and St. Augustine. And there are folks like Martin Luther and my favorite, John Wesley, and my second favorite, Phineas F. Brzee. 
And we remember people like Mother Teresa and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham. But we also remember other kinds of people, people whose names are not in books and they cannot be Googled. But in their words and their actions and their deeds, at the time they did things that were very plain and they were quite radical because they were holy things. We remember Mr. Enterline carried his wife into a bathroom. His funeral was this week. We remember my Uncle Frank. He's faithful to my Aunt Donna, even though her Alzheimer's has stolen her. My Sunday school teacher, Kathy Fish, who sent me $5 on my birthday all the way through college. We remember Mr. Bigger, my gym teacher, who was five feet, five inches tall and 230 pounds, old school and liked to yell too much, but it was because he cared about us way too much. We think about others like Ruth Bale, who was the lady that made sure to check on all the Sunday school rosters to make sure that no one, no one went missing. My brother-in-law, Keith, that remains a consistent ethical presence in a situation where he was treated unethically. We remember Oscar and Maria, two elderly people that brought their family to the United States to give them a better, their, their children a better life. And they cleaned our church so that their kids could go to school. And I remember you, the people that do holy things. And I remember the people that you would put on your list, and we remember them together. The sacred. The holy comes in the most common places among the most ordinary people. It is where the kingdom of God explodes. The second thing we do is we come to this table. It's at this table that the holy is on display. It's in bread and wine where there is, there's nothing more, and there's nothing more common than that. There is nothing more holy either in the world. It's at this table where we remember that Jesus was murdered like he was a common criminal. It's at this table where we remember that he was crucified between a couple of thieves. It was an ordinary death. Millions died through crucifixion. Many were crucified. But it was in his crucifixion that the holy was revealed. And it was done in a way that we would never expect. And it is at this table where we remember that God, the holy, is revealed in the mundane, and his work explodes in the unusual, the normal, the standard, the typical, the common, the customary, the habitual, the everyday, the regular, the routine, the day-to-day, the ordinary. These are the places where, God, where God's kingdom explodes. And when you come to this table, you are receiving a gift. You do not have to have a certain accomplishment or a certain achievement or a certain qualification. If you are common, you are welcome here. And to come to this table is a declaration that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. 
I want to remind you that at dinner, Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, friends, this is my body, which has been broken for you, and every single time you gather and you eat at this table, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after dinner, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the promise of the new covenant that has been extended to you. And every time you take of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. By coming to this table, we are reminded that God explodes in ordinary things. We come to, be rec- to recognize that God in Jesus has invited us here. And by accepting his invitation to dinner, we are grateful. This is Jesus' table, and all who are open to this work of God in Christ are welcome here, and we want no barriers, so I want you to know that our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic, but I invite you to come down with with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. What happens here is a gift given to you, Allow these to serve you. Allow these to say some things to you. Then you may dip the bread into the cup and you are able to eat it. For any reason you are unable to come down our aisle, my friend Justin will come and he will serve you if you just raise your hand and let him know that you, uh, that you need the elements. This is the season of lament. And Jesus himself gives us the opportunity to come to this table But then he says, uh, come to me if you are burdened and you are weary, and I will give you rest. Some of you have been uh, displaying the holy in the most common places of your life, and you're tired. So Pastor Mikhail, after you receive, Pastor Mikhail and I will be standing over here, and we would love to anoint anyone who would like to be anointed and prayed for this evening. So I invite you to this table, and then if you choose, I invite you to be prayed for and anointed. And know that everything that happens, even in this most ordinary thing, is an extension of God's grace to you. So when you are ready, you may come.